<laughs> Welcome. Hi. This is the 20th installment of the 500years.org podcast. This is Jeff Till, and today's May 16th, 2016. Today's topic is episode 20 slash episode zero, part two of my struggle. And that funny naming numbering convention is an inside joke from my friend Isaac. Today we're going to continue from the podcast that we went on last time about my background and how that sets the stage for the smaller messages I say during this podcast to you know create more context and understanding for what we're doing. I had thought maybe a theme was bubbling up from the podcast, especially since I talk so much about personal freedom, uh, obligation, doing what you want to do, getting out of school, that I thought maybe the theme could be how to be an individual. And then I thought, well, I could even have a podcast, which is, you know, how to be yourself, you know, how to be an individual, how to be yourself. But then I thought I shouldn't be telling other people how to be themselves because it's none of my business and I can't do that. So really what it is, is how to be myself. And that makes it very easy because I don't, that way I don't have to give advice to anybody, but I can still describe what it's like to be myself and maybe people can reflect and find value in it for themselves. Today, we're not going to do just the history, but also try to describe what I learned through the events in my life. And hopefully that might provide some value to the listeners. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. I've got my can of beer here and I'm ready to go. So when we left our young hero, 22 years old, he had just moved from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Boston, Massachusetts with nothing but $1,500 in his pocket, a microwave, a bass guitar amp and bass guitar, a few clothes, a pillow and a blanket. He didn't have a job and I didn't have an apartment. And besides my friend Dave, who I moved out with, I knew absolutely nobody. But as I think I discussed, we quickly found an inexpensive apartment by Boston standards, and I also quickly found a job at a research company that did consumer research reports. So what did I learn from moving across country without almost no preparation or having nothing waiting for me on the other side? What I learned is that just as I thought the if things went bad, I could always move home and I would be just in the same status quo that I was before I left. As it turns out, it, you can do this. You can pick up and move a thousand miles away and figure out how to do everything you need, even if you're just a dummy 22-year-old rock band theater uh, party art major. So, And that knowledge has actually empowered me greatly after that. Because once I did something that was highly unusual for a person to do, something that was risky, and it worked out, I always have felt better doing something that was risky or perhaps unconventional later. And even when I later would move another thousand miles away 20 years later, that decision was a hundred times easier. My first job was in the mailroom, which is where all uh, good corporate wannabes start out. 
and my main job was to copy the reports that this firm created and send them to the customers. The The main product, if you can believe it, was they used to have Sunday newspapers FedEx to them. And then what they'd do is they'd take those newspapers, they'd have a data entry team measure and get all the facts about each of the ads for consumer electronics into a database. So like what was for sale, uh, how much it cost, what the promotion was, and then how big the ad was and some other, other facts like that. And then they would have sort of data crunchers, put them in these report formats. And then I, it was my job to copy them and then send them out. And then I also did sales support. Uh, as I got there, I quickly mastered the, the core of my job, which wasn't very difficult, of course, and just started volunteering to do anything that I could. I didn't have a computer in my station, which back in 1993, it was very common for not everyone in the organization to have a computer. And so I petitioned hard to get one, and eventually I was able to convince them that you know they could find some old dumpy piece of shit that somebody else wasn't using and let me use it. They were also implementing email at the time, which everyone thought was batshit crazy, that why would we ever want to write a note on the computer to someone who was working in the same building? But obviously, it was not us that were right. It was the email that was right. Anyways, I took that computer and I started learning Borland Paradox, which was the database program they used to assemble the reports. And I became pretty good at designing new reports. And so I did redesigns of the existing products, and I even created new products at their request. And suddenly my job was wildly changing. And I did this all while maintaining all the work I had to do with my first job. I had just become so efficient with that part of work that I was able to do both. And we even got to the point where I had, we had these four analysts who every Tuesday would have to spend an entire 12 hour day creating, you know, cranking out the reports that they would need to send out by the end of the day. And I had figured out how to automate those using both the, the, the automation script and also some recording, software recording. And I was able to effectively turn the job into from a four man job into one that could be done by one person in about half the time that the four people were doing it. And they thought this was pretty cool. And I thought this was pretty cool. And we, we started talking about perhaps hiring someone to take over my mailroom responsibilities. And of course, I wanted more money. So this was 10 months in. I told them I wanted $28,000 per year, which was a full 8000 more than the twenty grand I was making. And they said, no, you've done a great job. So we're going to give you a 10% raise up to $22,000. And I said, bullshit. And so I walked. So the thing I learned about my first job was to basically, one, is be completely excellent at whatever easy task that you have to do. And that's one thing that I always try to teach my new employees is that they're not going to be able to contribute everything, you know, everywhere and totally great all the time. But there's going to be some simple tasks that they can do perfectly and to really excel at those. The other thing was that I was insanely both uh, friendly and accommodating, which I think new employees need to be. That means being cheerful, and that means graciously accepting whatever task, no matter how menial, no matter how uncomfortable or how seemingly unimportant it is.
always be willing to do whatever you're told. And then just be constantly volunteering. If you're a young employee, if anytime you see something that needs to be done, you know, tell your manager that you'd be happy to do it. And what happens is you start generating this, almost this expectation that every time there is something new to do or something new to explore is that Jeff Till is the man for the job. And that was one career lesson that I took with me even up to now is to always just be offering. And eventually people just get into this habit of going, when I need something done, I go to this guy. And that's especially helpful after you're no longer on salary and you are selling your own business to have a large group of people have that mentality towards you. So a full 10 months into Boston and now I have a resume. I have actual work experience, so I don't need to list list, uh, the old uh, hourly jobs and my degree as the top thing that I have to offer. I actually have real work experience. Now, in hindsight, I probably would have, my resume probably would have been stronger had I stayed at the first company more than 10 months. Now, when I look at a resume and I see 10 months, it's sort of a warning sign. But what I had learned is that there was great response, you know, great opportunities in temp work, especially in downtown Boston, which has a thriving, at the time had a thriving and still does, has you know a bunch of thriving sectors such as education, high technology, consulting, financial services, and biotech. Compare that to Kalamazoo, whose main industries were meatpacking and next door in Battle Creek, creating, making cereal. Baking cereal, I guess, is how you make it. So anyway, I, I took, a, I entered the temp force and had a few unmemorable jobs. But eventually, I got placed at a company called AT Carney, which is one of the most prestigious consulting management consulting firms in the in the world or in the U.S. You'd probably put it right behind, maybe a, a distant fourth or fifth behind Bain, BCG, and McKinsey. McKinsey, I guess, being first in that that list, but a very similar firm. They do they did stra- uh, business strategy, management consulting uh, across all sorts of different segments. And there, I was a graphic artist on a two person team, and there I totally worked my ass off, literally 60, 70, 80 hours a week, with occasionally even having to sleep over. They'd get me a hotel room next to the building. And I'd sleep over. And one of the neat things about this job, so I was very junior, I was only 23 years old, is that I got to interact with hundreds of different executives. And even though it was only my job to sort of clean up uh, presentations, and this actually used to be a job, it still is a job, but it used to be an actual skill set to just to know how to work a computer. Because uh, still, even at this time in 1993, they were only just implementing a program where the consultants got their own computer instead of having to sign one out. What I also did is I had a lot of all the information that came across my desk. I wasn't expected to read, but I read it anyways and got to the point where I could be conversant with most of the, you know, we had a a customer management relationship group. We had a supply chain group. There was a financial management group and there was different industries, you know, such as aerospace and defense or utilities or telecommunications. And I just took it upon myself to learn the language of business because it was being put in front of me every single day. I was so customer or internally customer focused and so fast and 
so appreciated that teams eventually started, even from other offices, would come and fly to the Boston office so that they could work with me and and my team on their their presentation. So they would spend a, a great amount of money to you know to fly from Baltimore or Miami or whatever, and just to work in our office so they the consultants could work with me. And that job I had for about three years, and it was absolutely exhausting. It came to the point towards the end where they would have they have me speak at some of the the internal company events on graphics processes and what what best in class. And unfortunately, this was against what the central marketing people uh, approved of, but it was what the consultants wanted. And so I always had it was always sort of like two bosses I had. There was the marketing organization, which was very procedural oriented and just thought about marketing and graphics and stuff. And then there was the actual consultants who needed to sell the big deals. These were usually multi-million dollar consulting projects. And I quickly decided that I would team on the consultant side because I realized those are my true customers, even though I directly reported to the marketing weenies. And that turned out to be a great thing to do because I got their advocacy to the point where they would boss around the marketing people who were my official boss. It also allowed me to get very smart in business concepts and, you know, sort of earn, earn that reputation that I had within the firm. And then it also turned out to be very good when I was ready to move on because eventually a group would actually move to a different company and they would take me with them, not as a graphic artist, but as one of their own. So some of the lessons I learned from working there is, you know, if you get this opportunity, again, do all the basics right and be super accommodating and super gracious and super helpful. If there's expertise that can be grabbed, go ahead and grab it. Don't pretend like it's not your job to not know something. You know, if, if you're working on a, a paper or a book or a pr- project of any sort and you're only expected to know a little bit of your specific role, go ahead and learn more. Just always take the opportunity to learn more. Also, always play up to their level. So while there was technically sort of a, a dichotomy between these, the sort of service class within the, the company, which was the graphic artists, the secretaries, and the administrative assistants and the like, and then the consultant class, which were all the people with Harvard MBAs um, who were making, you know, two or $500,000 per year. I didn't let that divide come between me and the consultants. So I entered the conversation as an equal and promoted myself that way uh, to the point where they eventually would even have me out to dinner with them and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's those were... And then, of course, you know, invite yourself into the adult conversation. So even though my role was only to push the buttons on the computer, since I had read and become very familiar with the actual content and the the business acumen, I would actually try to engage in those real business conversations with them, and they actually would appreciate it more often than not. So that's what I learned. I'm sorry, you might hear some kids screaming in the background. My son, my eight-year-old son, is throwing a homeschool Nerf gun war today. So we have about eight children over, 
about 15 nerf guns and they're trying to all kill each other having a great time so next i wanted to talk about a project my first music project that i did while in boston so as i think i discussed in the last podcast i had this strategy that i would get like a real job instead of a mcdonald's or a starbucks type job Actually, i'm not even sure starbucks was a thing uh, back then or they were just coming around and instead have a real office job and then pursue music on the side. So what I did do is I got my first bit of credit from a music store and I bought a MIDI super synthesizer workstation that would be what I would compose my music on. I did attempt to, I think I tried out for one band, but otherwise I didn't really try hard to get into a band knowing that unfortunately I'd already stacked all of this, you know, this 80 hour work week to myself but somehow even though i worked that much more than i did now i had plenty of time to devote to music and wrote my most ambitious piece of music that i've ever written it's called thing and nothing it's a four part four person rock opera all done with an electronic orchestra of sorts and it has wildly eclectic music everything from sort of industrial tone things to crazy circus music to orchestral pieces to big pop ballads and the amount of musical diversity within the piece is just incredible the compositions often have between you know 15 to 24 different uh, instruments and their arrangements sometimes wholly simulating a traditional string orchestra you know string and horns and everything and other times being you know other sort of moody instrumental pieces other times being just things that actually do sound uh like a keyboard going totally ape shit so anyways this is going to be a little bit longer than the clips i played in the last one i'm going to see i'm going to play a good portion of the very first of the five acts and let you listen to how nuts it is. This is all available at tasmlab.com and also leonstemple.com as well as amazon.com and cdbaby.com. And so you can get this for free if you want to hear the whole thing. It's very unusual. It's very aggressive. It's like nothing I've really ever heard before and I haven't heard since and nobody at all liked it. Oh, also of interest is the storyline so remember that this would have came out been written in 1994 and they were only just barely having aol dial-up service for america online and nobody you know nobody really had internet it was something that you you know you paid for and then you got to hook up a your phone modem you know a cord you know that went to the wall phone and you know it was at 44 whatever k bod I mean, they, you wouldn't be able to download anything that we watch now using that internet. But anyway, some people were very visionary and were thinking, imagining the information superhighway. So in this very forward, what turned out to be very forward looking, this is about a man, like a sort of a pathetic man who goes online to live in sort of a virtual world. And there's this sort of villainous mashpee monkwack who sells him a girl and later as he's falling in love with this sort of virtual concubine 
a another sort of adventurer convinces him to go and rescue his 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 fair maiden from the evil hands of Mashpee Munkwak. And I had four of my friends sing this, so I actually recorded, wrote, recorded all of the music, which sounds maybe a little bit dated as far as the keyboard sounds go, but I don't think dated as far as the melodies and combinations and arrangements. And then I had four of my friends back in Kalamazoo, I made a vacation of it to go back and have them learn the parts and then record the vocals. I then started a, my own record label and back then you couldn't get one-off discs made so I had actually like 2,000 printed uh, with with the custom with custom artwork and everything that I had done and I did a, a fairly yeoman's job of a marketing campaign where I got some reviews in magazines maybe maybe a dozen total and very few of them were, were positive uh, people didn't get it and it turned out that to be a musician, you have to do a lot more than just really work hard on the product. Anyway, I'm going to play you some. If you want, you can fast forward about 10 minutes if you're not in the mood to listen to music.
same minute the skies turned yellow and the wind started to blow. No! So that's the first, that's actually the sort of the introduction to the, the whole thing. The rest of the the opera is in four parts, and they're all about that long. And as hopefully you heard, it was very eclectic and very unusual, maybe a little bit like Mr. Bungle or Danny Elfman would come to mind. And But the rest of it is actually even, is probably less chaotic than what you just heard. In... 20 years since that was released. Wow, it's actually been over 20 years. It has sold a grand total of 30 copies. So that's actually one of my, it's my highest seller online, but really it's quite pathetic considering how much time and money I put into it. A few, few things that I learned by doing that. One is that <clears throat> as a musician at that time, I could compose just about anything. And there was very few things that I found too ambitious to try. So whether it was arranging strings into a sort of a classical quartet or doing things that were kind of jazzy. Now, I probably couldn't do uh, sort of experimental jazz or kind of... Uh, I, I never had really a fondness nor a skill for like blues-type blues stylings. But just about everything else I could figure out ways to make pretty wildly creative and very complex music. And then I also learned that working hard on the, hard on the product is probably not enough that, especially for something like music, you can, and people know this, this is a pretty common understanding of music. You, you can actually even dedicate your 80 hours a week to making a career out of it and still have it come to nothing. Most working musicians that I know uh, have their their creative project like this. They have their creative original band that has to tour and play constantly. They have their general business band, which plays weddings. And then they have their coffee shop uh, gigs that they do by themselves with an acoustic guitar or something. And then they also have to give lessons. And then they also have to do studio sessions. So you sort of have to hobble together 
this career of doing a bunch of stuff that you don't want to do to do the stuff that you want to do. And really, if you don't care about fame, then it's really just as easy to, as much as I talked about my strategy being a failing strategy, in some ways it was a winning strategy because I got to avoid all of that, you know, session work lessons, general business band, and I still got to create what I wanted. I just never got to promote it in a way that it ever found a real audience. And I've always been tempted to go back and see if I could rescue the the sort of the instructional MIDI files from that and put it with, you know, 2016 type samples and then do what I've done on my last two records, which is write in MIDI, but then replace all the instruments with acoustic instruments. It has a much more natural feel, but that would be quite a project. I wouldn't mind if I ever was making like seven figures a year hiring someone for a good time to do that process for me and then either uh, bringing in new singers or even maybe having a reunion with, with those guys. Uh, and, and that was Michelle Michelle Graff, who I worked on several projects with. She was a, a lead singer in a local Kalamazoo band. There was Brent Oberlin, who uh, was actually signed to Metal Blade Warner uh, where with his band Thought Industry. They actually released eight albums and were quite successful. Uh, Chris Breyers, who still writes music today and was in Twitch, among other bands, Sleet. They were signed to a record deal as well. And my friend Colin Bradford, who was in Screwtape, who you heard in the last episode, and he was on Grass Records, like Twitch, with uh, his other band, Doxy. And he's, he's probably, of the four of those people, the most active in music still. I think he's still, I see on Facebook that he gigs. And I stay in touch to some degree with all these people, mostly just like Facebook in touch. But still, I really valued the experience and loved doing it. One thing I forgot to mention is around 1994 in this time frame, I got my first credit card and made a very bold decision to buy a personal computer, which almost no one had at that time. And mostly it was on speculation that there might be some business opportunities in knowing computer skills, which <clears throat> was a fairly radical thought back then, but now seems almost ridiculous. The computer itself was $1,500. It was a DX250. It had four megs of RAM and a, I believe, 400 meg hard drive, which all of that would not even qualify for a watch these days. Anyway, it was a great investment, and it was a super important way to get in ahead and sort of see ahead and understand the future. I'm kind of proud of that, even though it sounds stupid now. Uh, also, I had for about uh, three years, I had been roommates with my friend Dave, who I'd moved out there with. And eventually I realized I wasn't, although we had a good amount of friends, that I wanted to make some new friends and knew I had to do something different, in particular, a girlfriend. Uh, so one thing I did is I went and I joined two other people in forming an art gallery. I dropped $2,000 to help lease the building and get the project started. And while I didn't find love there, I and only participated for a few months, I think it did help me when I eventually met my now wife, Jen, I also 
this uh, gallery, by the way, is still open. I can't believe it. It's now on uh, Massachusetts Ave in Cambridge. So it's actually expanded and it's turned into this huge community center. Even back then, 20 years ago, that's still what it was doing. It was hanging local art, having poetry readings, having musicians play, having a nude model for, for life drawing, art shows, little parties and stuff. But if anyway, it's still open. I'm probably still listed on the and the city as a partner in the business, even though they've asked me probably about 18 years ago if I would please remove that. But if you want to check it out, it's outoftheblueartgallery.com. And it has a picture of the guys, one of the partner, Tim's, Tom rather, Tom's dog, which has to be dead by now too. Actually, I'm surprised Tom's still alive. What I did learn from this is be really careful about who you partner with because this quickly went into a direction that I never really wanted it to. And then the fact that we sort of legally became partners in this was kind of a, a dumb mistake. We should have probably just had a handshake. Not a failure, not a failure at all. I also decided to move out of my roommate situation with Dave, and I responded to a classified ad that two women were seeking a roommate. I applied and really wooed them over. They had complained that their complained that their last roommate had always refused to buy toilet paper. So immediately after my interview there, I FedExed them a giant, giant size roll, you know, package of toilet paper and chocolates, and that won me the gig. And one of the girls, Jen, I pretty much, we started dating about maybe a week or two weeks after I moved in. It was almost instantaneous. And two years after that, we would get married in a lovely ceremony in Gloucester. And now it's been, I think we've been together for 18 or 19 years. So that worked out pretty well. In this time, I also met two of my, my best friends, Chris and Javi. We met at a music, Harvard music party. And we're the only ones that were sort of uh, drunken, s smelly dirt bags and immediately hit it off. And those relationships I still have today, even even longer than the one I have with my wife, interestingly enough. Also during this time, my wife and I started attending polo events. If you don't know, polo is a most probably the most expensive sport to play in the world as you need several horses. My wife is an equestrian and was growing up, so she started playing polo and we owned several horses in that time. Uh, it was wildly expensive. Uh, going to the polo games was always a delight. You just always back your car up to the field and you drink wine and have snacks and sort of watch the game while you socialize. It was a great time, highly recommended if you have a polo organization near you. Although you might meet some real douchebags as there is sort of the the wealthy class that is the inherited wealthy class and a lot of them have a very unusual and kind of disturbing relationship with consumption and ego anyways going back to when i met when i met jen i didn't the arc alley really had no bearing on me meeting her it was oh really just the the changes i was doing in my life to do something different than what i was doing uh mostly 
hanging around with uh, my, my friend Dave too much instead of getting out there and trying some new stuff. So partly it was that push to do something new, to live somewhere new, and the push to meet people. And then I, I imagine it helped my, my appearance that, you know, here comes this uh, nice looking young man who has a job with a nice firm and these sort of intense hobbies. And he also just started his own art gallery in Cambridge. I'm sure I could have looked worse. Okay, let's go back to my illustrative, uh, um, illustrious career at A.T. Kearney and how it ended. So a group, as I said, a group of, of real consultants there really took a shine to me. They moved over to PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is another prestigious consulting and accounting firm. And they invited me to come along with them to have a job. And I insisted that they bring me over as a consultant and not a graphic artist, to which there was some pushback because it was viewed as a high-risk move. Um, most of the consultants, you know, the business analysts would have had to at least have had a, a business degree from a reputable school. And a full-fledged consultant usually has an MBA from one of the top-tier business schools, such as Sloan or uh, Harvard or Northwestern or somewhere like that. And I had none of that. And I had no intention of going either. But I still insisted. And they could see that it wasn't too high risk of a move because they had worked with me for several years. They knew that even if I would stutter as a management consultant, that I would still bring plenty to the table in just simply writing and managing documents. And in, 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 in general, it worked out quite well. I got a great big raise uh, for the time. Now, looking back, it's about what I make like maybe in a little, you know, like a month or two. Uh, but the, if I thought A.T. Carney was hard working that much, PricewaterhouseCoopers was doubly so because it was the same 60, 70, 80 hours a week plus travel, full-time travel. You leave Monday morning, that's 6 a.m., and you get home Friday night. If your plane wasn't delayed, you would get home, you know, at 8 o'clock, and then you have like 30 hours at your home. And you end up losing all of your friends. You end up sort of missing your your wife or your girlfriend, and they really own you. They they start they cater almost all of your meal meals. So lunch is brought in, dinner is brought in, not because they are generous and fun like we hear about the Silicon Valley companies, but because they just don't want you to leave your desk. So the average schedule, besides the travel, is you show up at client site like at 7.30 in the morning. You work all day in meetings with the client. Then the client goes home like around 5 or 6, and then everyone stays and works until about midnight, and then you're off and given an assignment to do back in your hotel room because they pretty much own you. It's not like... You have any any friends or, or family or anything to do when you're in you know in a place a thousand miles away from your home so they just figure they'll work you and so the first year i worked there i actually earned less than minimum wage if you actually took the hours i put in and divided it by my annual salary even though my annual salary was twice what i was making at the former job my probably the weirdest experience i had was working for a client called bear creek it's a company that grows exotic pears and candy and stuff like that and then they ship it for christmas you may have gotten your harry and david uh, custom pears or candy as a gift 
anyway, it was a really nasty culture, and it was located all the way over in Oregon. I forget the name of the city. It was near Asheville. And so living in Boston to get to the the rural Oregon took about 12 hours door-to-door. You had to fly to San Francisco, wait around for a while, then take another flight, and then like drive for like an hour. So it was absolutely brutal. There was even one day where I was able to bill 25 hours in one day, which essentially means when you, when you bill hours, that means you spent that time working and you get to charge the client for them. Since I had started working in Boston and I worked 25, 25 hours in a row without sleep and then made the plane ride during that time to Oregon. So I actually caught extra hours during the day because of the time zones. I one time, uh, one of my, my good friends and still a client, he was a really junior guy at the time, and the team was afraid to have photocopies made in Oregon or to rely on FedEx to have the photocopies delivered since the meeting was so important. So they actually had him do that 12-hour commute just to drop off some photocopies which he did, and then once he was done, he got, went right back to the airport and went home. So he had 24 hours of flight within a, like a day and a half just because they didn't have faith in FedEx. There was also one t- we had this very aggressive partner who was in charge of the account. I won't mention his name, but he would actually an- antagonize us along with the client. Probably one of the strangest experiences I had there is he was running late. He had just flown in from somewhere and he had to take a shit. So he brought the entire consulting team to hang around the, into the bathroom and we hung around the stall where he sat just groaning out uh, this disgusting shit. You know, it just smelled awful. And he was briefed on, on what we were doing and gave us advice as he continued to take a dump and clean himself up. It was truly disgusting. During this trip, I was away from home so much that I ended up having to propose marriage to my wife over the phone, which isn't the most romantic or picturesque thing that you can imagine. And But that was just the situation as it was. Also during this time, my brother-in-law, who had just married my sister-in-law two weeks before, decided to commit suicide by throwing himself in front of a commuter train. Basically, he had a. Uh, so I had a. I, I had flown out Monday morning, and then I had to fly back for the funeral. Literally, like two days later, they they did it very quickly, uh, because if you ever are a young person, like you know, he was forty or something, and you commit suicide, and you have a brand new bride, and you have a seven year old son, and a bunch of family that loves you, the funerals are absolutely brutal. Uh, people are just like screaming. They're, you know, they're angry, they're, they're enraged, they're sad. And so I had to fly all the way back for this funeral. On the red eye, I went to the, spent, you know, four hours at the funeral with family and uh, saw this, this mess of, uh, of a, t- you know, tired, terrible, enraged, you know, suicide leftover family. And then I had to get back on the plane and go back to Oregon to continue working. And so I actually, I did that trip in one week, you know, four times essentially, which was just absolutely awful. Anyway, so I also had other gigs 
Bear Creek probably being the most memorable, but there was a, a long time I was commuting to LA for six months and I lived in LA in a corporate apartment working for the Disney Corporation. And I worked for Toyota down in Florida. I worked for Prudential in New Jersey. So all this business travel sort of sounds kind of romantic when you're first signing up for it or you see other people doing it like, oh, we get to go somewhere and uh, eat exotic food and see new places. But really, when you're going to suburban L.A., New Jersey, Deerfield Beach, Florida, uh, it doesn't really seem that romantic anymore. It's just like the biggest pain in the ass. And after like three years of doing this, of working, you know, 70 hours a week and traversing, traveling full time, I was just totally exhausted. I remember I was coming home on the red eye flight, which by the way, if you can avoid a red eye, in my opinion, I would there. It's absolutely awful because no one ever gets any sleep and you just feel like total garbage for like three days. But I was on the red eye home and I was so tired and they had this movie called Polly the Parrot, which was about a parrot that does hijinks or something. And I just started crying and I just realized that I just couldn't take this anymore. And I was like, I I just got to leave this. Um, So what did I learn through my Pricewaterhouse experience? Um, One is I learned how to talk to anybody and be considered, you know, worthy of the room that I was in. And that was one skill, besides this this encyclopedic business knowledge that I now carry with me in my writing career, I can now interview just about any person in business, regardless of their seniority, their level, their technical status, their industry. It doesn't matter if they're in the oil and gas industry or they manufacture mobile phones or they create animation for kids or they sell porta potties I can have an intelligent and respectful business kind of conversation with just about anybody in the world and not have them question my credentials for having the meeting now that's mostly because I'm doing this in a, in a context where I'm going to write a paper for them so it's not like I'm having a conversation where I'm giving them advice but still it's one of the most valuable skills I've ever learned I also learned that I didn't want to work hard just for the sake of working hard. So whatever Protestant work ethic I had that I prided myself upon, that I was scared that I wouldn't be able to fulfill, that my my dad, you know, would be disappointed that I didn't have, I won as I got past that hurdle where I no longer believed that I was the slacker uh, stoner musician that was never going to be able to work. I had fully demonstrated that I was not only able to rise within the varsity level of, you know, business and industry, but I was also proven that I could work hard, proven that I could show results and proven that I could even uh, rise in ranks and eventually become manager. And so I was a promoted to a manager like seconds before I actually quit and quitting was terrifying because at Pricewaterhouse they tell you that you're completely unprepared to go work anywhere else that they had all the infrastructure and the protection that made your career successful and that and I was I was constantly told that I wouldn't be worth anything outside and then plus I was I thought they were mad I thought they were I remember when I was putting in my resignation I thought my manager who's still a good friend and a client 15, 20 years later, was going to jump over the table and strangle me. But that wasn't the case. And 
I had found a new job. This would have been in 1999 by the time I left. And this was the full tilt of the dot-com boom. It might have been 98. So anyway, I only sent out like seven resumes. And when I finally, you know, I was doing my analysis of people who were writing back. I don't don't know how many of those actually got back to me, but one company did. And they were... The only thing I could say nice about them in my review was that they had a nice office on Newbury Street. Newbury Street's the sort of fashionable, cool street in Boston. And that was good enough for me because it just wasn't Pricewaterhouse. And when I even had my interview there and my uh, the, the, the CEO of that company still makes fun of me for this, you know, when they said, you know, why are you coming? Why are you leaving? And I was just like, I don't want to work hard anymore. And so that's probably one of the most stupidest things you could say during a job interview. But when they actually asked me to clarify what working hard was, uh, they were they were pretty terrified of what I described as what real hard work was. And when I told them that I was, you know, delighted to put in, you know, a mere 50 hours a week and tr- only travel a few times uh, per month or per, per year, they thought that was that was fine. And then the whole myth that that it was only Price Waterhouse that enabled me to be successful turned out to be total bullshit because I got there and basically ate everybody's lunch. Uh, Nobody was anywhere near as prepared to deal with professional circumstances like I was, Uh, including most of my managers and and, and the company leadership. uh, So I ended up there. Uh, It was uh, Pamit River. It was sort of a digital marketing agency. Oddly, two weeks after I got there, they they fired about fifty people uh, via the phone. They they they, uh, they pulled everyone into a conference room, and someone had foolishly uh, left. One of the HR managers had left the who who was getting axed list list on the printer. So the the whole company already knew about it. But then uh, both the the general manager, who's still a good friend and a good client, and the CEO. Uh, were both on the, were both vacationing on Cape Cod, and they dialed in to a conference call and fired everybody over the phone. Uh, people were like howling and screaming. It was it was pretty gross. Now I I made the cut because I had just started, and and it turned out that this company had just recently been bought by another company called Teletech, and oddly, even though the transaction already happened, they still gave me something like. Uh, what was it like 1300 uh stock options which then easily turned into about like $55,000 within a couple you know a couple weeks or months after I started there and it turned out this other company had bought Pamit because they needed to look more like a dot com company because that was how uh crazy and and ferocious and energized the dot com space was at the time so just anything for them to look like they sort of had some kind of tech uh, online type savvy. And so then the team was eventually reduced down, you know, starting at like 60 people or something. Uh, eventually we were just like seven people who were just tasked with helping write this RFP for a, a major automotive company. And it was a $500 million contract that would last 25 years. And so my job was to write section 1.1.1, you know, what is your attitude towards the customer? So 
it was kind of a, it was a weird experience. And then eventually, when that deal was finally closed, it, w- it wasn't really closed because the deal like that then has like a year of uh, legal review and accountants and lawyers scrub. Every, everybody and their brother tries to get in front of a deal like that because there's money to be made. There was really no purpose for the company to exist anymore. And so they let go of more and more people until there was like only four of us. And then eventually we just, we sort of tried to sign work and then then we sort of knew the end was near. So I used to just, uh, I had just found Ayn Rand at that time and had bought a copy of Atlas Shrugged. And so what I would do is I'd show up at work around 10 a.m. I would go down to the river, the Charles River, it has a beautiful park next to it called the Esplanade. And I would just sit and read Atlas Shrugged for about four hours, you know, take, I'd, you know, go to go get something for lunch. And then around two or three, I would go home. And that was literally like four months of a summer that all I did was sort of show up for a couple hours at work, you know, maybe checked email. And then I sat by the river reading Ayn Rand. And that was also, during this time, it was also occasionally having to fly to New York. And at the airports, they would have Reason Magazine. And so I started uh, picking up Reason Magazine there and eventually subscribed. Reason is sort of a very moderate libertarian magazine. Uh, it's about free markets and free minds. It's some, something uh, I, I still get, but it, that was prim- primarily, you know, in these sort of pre-internet, pre-internet popularity days. You know, between Ayn Rand, you know, finding stuff from the Cato Institute and Reason Magazine were basically the only sort of network or information I was getting about libertarian ideas. And what I really liked is that it wasn't like I read them and they convinced me. It was more like I was reading stuff that I already believed in, if that makes sense, and was just finding out that other people did too. So I I always think of myself as a natural libertarian, even from when I was a teenager, but never really developed a political vocabulary for it until I started picking up these other materials and went like, oh, look, I have a tribe. Isn't this cool? And that's kind of a weird thing to say in a libertarian way, because we're not really looking for a collective to join. But it was the tools and the language and the ideas that really sparked me. And of course, I was so excited. I you know, took this stuff to my friends like Chris and Javi, and they looked at me cross-eyed and said, well, this is awful. What are you doing? And uh, I was like, no, I found the answers. I found the answers. And and still to this day, we have uh, impassioned and friendly debates over these ideas. And of course, I've I've developed a lot further since then. But anyway, it was, it was a delightful summer, and I started to almost have an appetite for learning how to not work and yet still work. An important lesson I did learn from my time at AT Kearney and my time at Pricewaterhouse and my time at Pamet River and then later H&W is that having a network is extremely important. Now, when you're very young, people hammer this into your head and it sort of makes no sense whatsoever because you don't really know anybody professionally. And so you almost get to try to second guess and think like, you know, do I need to take people out to lunch? Do I need to take people golfing? and just meet people. And the true way that you build a network is by working with people, be they employer, you know, employers or clients, and providing exceptional value to them. And then they, in turn, recommend you to other people. And then what you do is you provide exceptional value to those people. 
And pretty soon, before you know it, you look back after a decade, and all of a sudden you've got this huge list of people who not only advocate for you, but trust you and depend on you and really want you to succeed because your success is their success. So as an example, that poor guy who, as a 23-year-old, had to do the 12-hour plane ride to drive off, drop off the photocopies, just uh, last week, I was doing a project for him. My company was still working for him. The guy who wanted to jump across the desk and strangle me when I quit is still a great friend. We've you know, been to each other's weddings, and even now, we still work together 20 years later. And he was a guy who eventually would bring me some of my biggest clients that I have now. Uh, the the general manager who called in and fired everybody from the Cape is still a good friend and a good client and so on and so forth. It's a lifetime of building business. And I feel pretty confident that I almost never have to fill out, you know, send out like resumes to a job opening ever again because of the network I built. And I recommend other people to do the same, but understand that the network comes organically from delivering value, not from being someone with a good handshake and an aggressive calendar. the opening to my fourth full-length album, The Essential Cubicle Nose Picker. It's a, it was, I managed to do it both during the time at Pricewaterhouse and Pamet River. It was released in 1999. It's another opera that has two singers, a male and a female singer, this time the same female from Thing and Nothing, and then Rolling Head, Dead River Drag star David Grant as the male vocalist who was a very popular singer around Kalamazoo. And the whole album is a sort of a chamber piece of mostly piano with highlights of violin and classical guitar, and then two vocalists telling the story. And the story is about a man who, living with his girlfriend, it it sort of combines stories from a, a, a friend of mine or a friend of Jen's, actually, on the relationship arc, and then some sort of personal story about a man who is sort of trapped in the business world, the corporate business world, and eventually learns that he's frustrated and needs to get out from being someone else's employee and wants to do something different. At the same time, he's he's having a tough time transitioning with his girlfriend, and so he eventually leaves her and leaves work, and the whole thing ends kind of in a, I don't know, like an uplifting, but it's kind of somber note. Uh, The music's very complex, even though the instrumentation is enormously simple, since uh, there's no drums, no bass, no no real, you know, shredding electric guitars or anything like that. What I wanted to do was see if I could 
using a very simple arrangement and one that I wasn't necessarily always comfortable with create like a high quality piece of music that people would enjoy. And on this one, I'd had no ambition to think that people were going to embrace it or like it. Unlike my delusional thinking with thing and nothing, which I thought the whole world would have loved. This one is probably just as strange, but it's much more, much more accessible in the sense that it has nice, great big melodies and nice big harmonies and nice sort of uh, chamber parts. I say chamber, but it's sort of like small symphonic, very, almost a lot of it very classically sounding uh, versus not very much pop or rock sound. And I... I really enjoyed it. I really got to work on lyrics. I've, I've already played you several songs on past podcasts. I think the What You Want to Be When You Grow Up ends with Demystified, Disenchanted. During, um, I believe, the Obligation podcast, you heard Mom's Favorite Bum, which is probably the best track off the record. I ended one of them with Beautiful Like Me. Anyways, this record is available on... Amazon and cdbaby.net. You can, of course, get all the MP3s for free at leonstemple.com and tasmlab.com. So I'm going to play you one track. It's not going to be as long as what you heard of Thing and Nothing. This will be about three minutes. And this probably isn't the best track off the record. But since I've already played you a bunch and I'm saving some of the other ones for later, I think this one will be just fine. This is Everything Will Be Clear, I believe is the name. And it was originally an Overman song a punk rock overman song now wildly changed check out the lyrics tap your toe and hum along with that great melody acceptance and trust. This environment is cognizant, behavioral act and plan, the integral infrastructure of heart, mind, hand, and land. I will sow every seed that falls, and I wish I had the skills, the patience and the luck, and I wish I had the balls to say, so what? For the first time that I nurse said in lips The acceptance and the trust Stem from my tongue and lips The eloquence of enlightenment did stream for heavy you The hue that hollows who and how How shit I'll figure it out I will sow every seed that falls And I wish I had the skills The patience and the luck And I wish I had a buck to buy a beer But I'm thinking for the first time that beer's bumps a belly will 
check it out i think it's uh 10 or 11 songs uh just about all of them are really good i think i sold a total of around 30 copies of this one as well and that was basically met my expectations for what i thought would happen uh fun i don't know if i learned anything except i i did advance my songwriting quite a bit even more and probably those two pieces might, might be the height of my songwriting it's hard to say because I took much more conventional approaches to the next four albums. So my summer of lazing around by the river, reading books, reading libertarian philosophy, uh, did eventually have to come to a close. Uh, eventually, as the, the company got down to fewer and fewer people, they eventually, the mother, the, the holding company eventually said, you know, if you guys don't get to work, we're just going to have to shut you down, and that's what happened. So eventually, I just went to my boss's office, the now CEO of the almost dead company, and I said, you know, hey, chief, what are we doing next? And he had already secured his jobs at another startup based out of New York City called originally Worth, Worth Digital, I think. Uh, it was run by the previous CEO of Pamit, or founded by is venture venture funded it was originally there used to be a magazine called worth which appealed to high net worth people high net worth people are people who have a lot of money usually classified people classify it different but the true high net worth you know usually make hundreds of thousands per year and you know have seven or eight figures or maybe nine figures in the bank and that became eventually became H&W Digital, which then was later renamed to H&W, meaning high net worth. And I was the eventually the vice president of marketing strategy there. And that job was uh, was just fine, I guess. I was there for two or three years. It was right during the dot-com boom and bust. So we were right at the end of the boom. And then 9-11 happened, and which was kind of crazy. We used to live, we lived, my wife and I lived in this town called Winthrop, which is right underneath the Boston airport. If you recall, both, either all, both or all three of the, the evil terrorist planes took off from there. So after 9-11, it was living under the airport was was constant airplane airplane noise and now it was completely silent anyways all of our clients were located like in the world trade center because our clients were all financial services firms for the most part because those are the people who interact with high net worth people and i did get laid off for a while and what was interesting again going back to the network is i barely got to collect my unemployment in those few months that i was i was laid off because my old clients kept on calling me up with work to do. And now if I had any brain in my head whatsoever, I would have started my company right then. 
but I didn't because H&W eventually after three months realized they missed me and they rehired me. And uh, I got to work for some interesting clients. I, I got to work with the family office of Merrill Lynch, which is for clients who have over $100 million in assets. And once you get to the level of wealth where you have $100 million, you essentially hire a private bank and your own sort of CFO for your, your estate. And you start worrying about things, not just like stocks and bonds, but whether you want to buy a Pepsi bottle you know, bottler, or if you want to buy a fleet of, you know, of construction equipment, or you also have investments in fine art, you might have kidnapping insurance, and you might need a company to set up your panic room, which I don't know if there was a movie about that about a decade ago. A panic room is a room that when your house is under assault, you run into and it locks you in there and keeps you safe. And so it was a very weird space. And I had to meet a lot of these advisors who were millionaires themselves. And during this this time, I started having this idea for an email platform, a piece of technology that would let these high net worth advisors, and, and keep in mind that high net worth was different things for different companies. So uh, a common insurance company like Prudential considered people who made 100 grand a year to be high net worth, whereas somewhere like when we worked for JP Morgan or... Merrill Lynch, they would only consider people with a million dollars in assets to be high net worth. Or, you know, then they'd have other segments for their pentamillionaire or decamillionaire. And so I I had this product, which first everyone laughed at, and I sort of built on my own with a one of the developers on staff. And the idea was to have like an email management system that would automatically send uh, anything from birthday cards to holiday cards to event reminders, and it would all fall under compliance because they were having an awful time with government regulation and making sure communications were compliant. And so at first the company laughed at me, but then the CEO got really excited because as a service company, you can't go IPO, you can't be acquired. You have to be a software company. And when I actually had this vision for software, the company slowly got on board, and as I snuckily, I, you know, sneaked in the development of the very first version, and then it became so popular within the company that they decided that I shouldn't work on it anymore, and so they hired an entirely new team in New York City, which I still get mad about. I don't know why, but they they did uh, bring in a bunch of idiots to uh, to take over my job. And so essentially what they did is they, they one, closed our office in Boston. So they said, go work at home. And then two, I didn't have any more work to do because I had focused all my time on this software product. And so what did I do is I mostly just, I hung around the house. I, I didn't work. I, you know, would check in enough that they would know I, I was still there, but I just pretty much got about half a year off with a paycheck. So another time you know, to sit by the river. And in this time, I learned how to code PHP and MySQL. And I built my own version of the of a couple different software platforms. Uh, both ended up being failures that probably I mostly broke even. And those include a Leap, Leap Thought, which was a document sales company. Some It sort of had prepackaged documents that you could buy. Um, probably had you know, it probably took me a couple of weeks to make. I think, you know, I got a total in its lifetime about seventeen 
thousand in fees collected from that. Myerland Referral Soft actually probably collected several hundred thousand dollars, but because I had these crappy employees, uh, we ended up losing money in the end. Referral Soft was very similar. Um, the software is still alive, actually. It was uh, it was taken and then remade by a business partner of mine. So at one point, the site with only half an employee and a good sales network was drawing about $300,000 per year. But we weren't seeing a lot of that money. We only got like a sixth of that. So those were two failed companies, along with another failed company I later would launch called Glee CD, which was a community music recording service where we would bring in a remote studio into your church or school and record your choir. And then you could sell those CDs to make money. Why have a fundraiser where you sell baked goods when your choir already has a marketable product in the music that they make? Uh, I love the idea. A lot of other people did too, but we just couldn't get any many sales. Our, our sample project went great, was a huge success, did everything we thought it was going to do, uh, made money for the client, but everyone else was too slow to, and churches I, I now know probably have a hard time coming up with three grand to launch these projects to start with. So there I was, I was just staying at home. After about six months, they said, well, you got to come in and start doing work again. We, you know, we can't just, you know, send you money to do nothing, you know, which is reasonable, I guess. And so I said, well, no, thanks. I don't want to come in. And so I even, I even met with the, the CEO of that company. And, um, you know, I told him I was resigning and he's like, oh, why? And he, he didn't really even care. I said, um, well, I, I was, uh, you know, I was taking off this, the software project that I invented which, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't think was right. And he's like, oh, I didn't even know that happened. Uh, I thought I thought you were still in charge of that. And so I was like, well, fuck. I should have just came to you to start with. It wasn't that big of a company. It was only like 30 or 40 people. And uh, I had a lot of, you know, time with the CEO. So I don't know why I ever didn't bring it up. Maybe because I was sitting at home uh, working on my own shit. And I told him I had found a job with another person in the network who we had worked with to do and go into the outsourcing industry. So this is now 2002 and the dot-com shit is all but dead and buried. But what everyone is doing now is they figured out that people in India that, you know, they can pay them $7 an hour instead of $50 an hour to answer the phone and write software code. And so hence was the offshoring boom. And that was abundantly clear that it was sort of the only boom thing happening around that time. Uh, you know, everyone, you know, not to speak for the nation, but everybody was all still 9-11, you know, crazy and sad, whatever. Maybe this was 2003, so the the Iraq war would have been starting. Anyways, so the only the only business was that. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, um, that sounds like a really good idea. And it turned out two weeks later that he resigned and then um, became the CEO of an offshoring outsourcing firm. So he was he was thinking the exact same thing I was. Anyway, so I left there. I briefly went, and I, I don't, don't even usually consider this part of my history, to this new company called Decision Logic, which was owned by a sort of mafioso family in Boston, Italian family, uh, that ran a temporary staffing firm. And we were supposed to be off, offshoring strategists. And it really was miserable work. I had about a three-month project with a local industrial manufacturer 
of nuclear power control systems, which would be software and hardware that helps you control your nuclear power plant. And I used to interview engineers and try to figure out which ones we could send their job, you know, to an Indian engineer at a fraction of the price. And if you can imagine these interviews, um, these engineers, these American engineers would, you know, just about want to rip your throat out after, you know, you were, they figured out that they were being interviewed to see if they could be replaced with uh, cheap Indian labor. So it was absolutely awful work and I hated it. Uh, but I lucked out and I got, we ended up getting hired by this executive it was advisor to this, the CEO and president of EMC. It was this uh, this woman, uh, and she had this assignment where she was going to be meeting with various. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong. Japanese companies for something or other. Anyway, so it was six months that she was going to be in Japan, and she needed someone to be sort of her right hand man and help her prepare documents and, you know give advice on on uh, strategy. And at this point, I wasn't merely a document manager, but I could, you know, write, write proposals and draft my own presentations and give strategy advice and whatnot. And so I was sent to her. And what worked out is that she was in Japan all day and all night. So we would just have a call at 9 a.m., uh, I believe at her nighttime, and then 9 p.m. at my uh, nighttime. And we'd sort of coordinate you know, sort of trade off what we did. But otherwise, um, you know, out of this new six month period, you know, I probably had a grand total of two or three work, you know, weeks worth of actual work. And then uh, once again, I was sent to go sit by the river and read uh, figuratively, meaning I was just collecting a paycheck to do nothing. So eventually, after six months, the woman I'm supporting comes back to the United States, the project's over, and I get a phone call or an email saying, Jeff, you got to come back to the office and start being a productive employee again. And I was just like, you know, I didn't even go in to resign. I just over the phone, I said, no, I don't think I'm coming back in. And because by that time, I just couldn't take going to sit like at an office or a cubicle and have the commute and all the garbage that comes with having a job. And luckily at that time, the executive from Pricewaterhouse, who had, was going to jump across the desk and strangle me for quitting, ended up giving me my first sort of freelance assignment for $25,000 to write a paper. And even at that time, I wasn't really a writer. I had written some proposals and stuff. This would be the first time I'd be considered a writer. He knew he could trust me. He knew I could provide value. And he knew I could understand the complex material that we were going to be covered. So it didn't matter that I didn't know how to write and that I would have to learn, look up, you know, grammar rules and stuff in the online, it was more important that I could be trusted and I understood the material. So I took my, my sort of my music name, which was the Till Action Science Media Laboratory or TASM Lab. And I was going to do SAM Lab, the SAM Lab, the Strategy and Methods Laboratory, thinking that maybe at some point I could combine the two and have them work together. So that was how I sort of picked out my business name. I did need something to have email and a small website, a literally tiny website to say what I did. And unfortunately, I couldn't get samlab.com. I decided not to go with TSAM, like Tsunami TS, because it was confusing. I went with SamLab. Unfortunately, samlab.com was owned by a dog 
named Sam, Sam the Labrador Retriever, and I couldn't get that URL. And this is, you know, the, I've been in business for 13 years now. I recently, last year, I tried to reach out to Sam the dog again, thinking that maybe Sam would not be alive anymore. And the guy, <laughs> the guy did return my email, but he was going to give up the URL for the the paltry sum of money that I was offering. I think I offered him 200 bucks. Uh, interestingly, like uh, like a month later, somebody from New Zealand wrote me and wanted to buy my LeapThought address, the, one of the failed software companies. And I was like, sure, um, you know, how much do you want to pay? And he's like a thousand bucks. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. So that was like a free thousand bucks I got just for sitting on the URL. And so that was how my own business was started. It was more a lot out of apathy for having to, or uh, you know, severe disinterest in going to work for someone else. At the same time, for months going up to it, I really struggled. Uh, just kept on thinking, like, if if I want to be different, I've got to do something different. And so, if I want to make more money and be in control of my life, I can't do the same thing that everyone else does. And that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned, and it's being reinforced with all every book I've been reading. You know, over the last ten years, is you know you can't be if you if you can't try to excel in the same things that everyone else is doing, and be excellent. You, all you can do is is be mediocre, and conformist. So, you know, doing you know getting good grades in school, going to the good college, working for the, the good company are things that everyone knows is is supposedly the safe path. And if you do those things, you're going to end up like everybody else. You eventually got to break off and do something different if you want to be different. And it sounds so stupid and obvious, but it's probably the biggest lesson I learned in my entire career. Well, before I go into Sam Lab, I'm getting ahead of myself because in 2000, my friends, my great friends, Chris, Javi, Dave, and I, the four of us who had met 10 years prior at... Um, at the Harvard Music School party, decided that we would start a rock band. And looking at how the instruments fell out, we were missing a drummer. And I wasn't a drummer, but I went and bought a drum set and became a drummer. And the first time I played, you know, besides some uh, noodling in college, was at our very first practice. And we had an absolute blast. This actually started, it was right during the time I was unemployed, or right before the time, I, right before I was laid off. And every single Saturday or Sunday, we would meet up around 10 in the morning with a 30-pack of beer, and we would just jam all day, uh, and we would drink the 30-pack while we were there. Then we'd get some dinner, grab our girlfriends and wives, and then go out to like two in the morning. And it was an absolute blast. And there was always a time after our band practice that we would sit or maybe we would barbecue and in the backyard and talk philosophy and politics. And it was just genuinely one of the funnest times I've had in my entire life. We ended up recording two records, uh, one in 2001 called Rockmen to a Faraway Nowhere, and then a second one in 2003 called Into the Monkey Oven. Both the albums are available at the other place I told you, cdbaby.com, tasmlab.com, leonstemple.com for free, or you can go buy them off Amazon or other music sites. And they were an absolute blast to record. Thank you, Jerry's 
studio. We, all original music, uh, we sort of, I want to say, you know, anything like The Replacements or Camper Von Beethoven, sometimes you describe yourselves as a poor man's queen, because some of the music was very complex, but very sort of theatrical. Uh, great, funny lyrics. Uh, we all took turns writing songs, although I wrote the most of them. We also all took turns singing, often having all four of us sing on the same song, because we were all just uh, impassioned and, you know, just couldn't stay away from the mic and saw the complete and total fun of the whole thing. Uh, what a wonderful time. We ended up playing all of the cool places in Boston, such as the Middle East and TT the Bears and Club something or other. And we played at, um, oh, it's the place in Jamaica, Jamaica Pond that has the bowling alley, the Milky Way, I think. Uh, most, uh, one, I would say probably the most dangerous uh, drunk drive home you'll ever make in your life going down the Jamaica Way. And eventually we had to break up because Chris got a job working for Congress in Washington, D.C. and had to move. Javi then got a job and the Lego project, which is this big tube. Uh, they're, they're both uh, physicists, and they had just finished their PhDs from Tufts. And uh, the Lego project is this, this big tube buried underground that they keep in a vacuum, and they shoot laser beams against mirrors, and they try to figure out if a pulsar happened 50,000 years ago. Kind of neat stuff. I think they did just discover gravity uh, the the other week. That I saw some kind of press release on it. Anyways, here's one of the songs. This is My Drunk Drunk Secretary, one of my favorites. And the character of My Drunk Drunk Secretary would end up in five other songs that I've written. Check it out. <laughs>
bomb that would destroy you. They dropped the bomb that would destroy you. They told you. SamLab was also a return to me doing what I did best. And there was a little struggle there because, when I, again, back when I was AT Carney and I was a graphic artist and sometimes, you know, would later turn into a, both a writer and a graphic artist, I was always the underclass and the strategy consultants were the overclass. And so it was always a big thing, both in my ego and my projected earnings and everything else that I had to ascend beyond what I excelled at and got good at something that maybe I wasn't quite as quite as good yet, but was considered more respectable by the society at large, by my parents, you know, by everyone else. And so with Sam Lab, I reverted back to essentially a lot of what I did back at AT Kearney, which was to help salespeople and executives and consultants write and, you know, write great papers and deliver great presentations. And all things being equal in that very first year, back in 2004, I believe, when we started, you know, I, I out-earned by 50%, you know, working half as much what I made as a full-time person at any of the jobs that I had previously. And so that already put me at the age, you know, 30, 32, 33, making in the mid, you know, mid-hundreds, uh, for a paycheck, which was, was pretty good considering how young I was. You know, I managed to crack six figures before I turned 30, which was nice. And what else happened there? So that also mean, meant that um, I also ended up playing a lot of golf because uh, while I was awful at it, I was every time someone had a day off, they would always call me because they knew I was around and not doing anything. So when I actually hurt my, eventually I would fall off a horse and hurt my shoulder and I couldn't couldn't golf anymore. Uh, I sort of ruined about, you know, 15 other people's hobbies because they had no one to play golf with anymore. The At the same time, while I was going through this, what I perceived as an enormously risky period where I was starting my own business and not relying on someone else, uh, that's also when my wife and I decided to do some other risky things, such as have our first baby. I think I was either, you know, 32 or 33 when that happened. We would have been talking about 2005 now. So I was uh, 34, I guess, by the time she actually was born. And we also, months after she was born, decided to buy a house up in the northern suburbs of Boston in Amesbury. And this house would be over $600,000, which was a fantastic sum of money then. And it still is actually kind of a big chunk now. The um, But it was also the stupidest time to ever buy a house because it was right at the highest part of the housing bubble and ended up to be kind of a, a terrible financial mistake because we would end up losing over $130,000 on that purchase when we finally sold it later. Also, in through my professional career while I was still going to the office, my weight had ballooned up to, I'm, I'm like 5'11", and I got up to about 230, 235 pounds, so I was getting pretty chubby. And so I went on a diet, which I lost about 40 pounds, which I've still maintained even 10 years later. Uh, so we, we bought the house, we had the baby, 
come now, business was good. We got 2004, 2005, 2006, and 2007. The company's revenues exceeded $300,000 for the year. So I decided to hire someone. I originally hired someone who was just absolutely awful. And I was like, well, this isn't working out. So I ended up hiring a second person who was absolutely delightful and a great person to work with. And I was like, oh, it wasn't that I needed two employees. I just needed one good one. And so I quickly fired the first one. And the other employee is still with me today, eight years later. The year following, we would add another employee, and Addie was our, our little girl, but then we would have a second baby who was Huck, and this was about 2008, and things are actually just cooking along quite well. Obviously, my priorities and my time uh, has changed quite a bit now that I'm running a business with actual employees, and I have a small family. I did manage to record my seventh album, an adulty adipacy, which was wildly different than all the other ones. It's more of a, ooh, what would you say? It's kind of not loungy, but it's kind of this dreamy, kind of Burt Bacharach uh, type of slow pop that has acoustic guitars, a lot of acoustic instruments, uh, but keys as well. And for this one, I had my friend Chris Breyers, who was on the Thing and Nothing record. And again, Michelle Graff, my friend who was the girl who was on the other two sing and this one was again this was released not even in mass distribution but just as a total hobby uh, it is for sale on all the sites that i mentioned previous and for free and i'm just going to give you one track off it this is level cloud yeah uh, just just to clarify i uh, wrote all the music and i recorded I played all the instruments, uh, drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, and I would just mail the CD over with just the music and a scratch track of me singing. And then Chris in Kalamazoo was able to lay his tracks over. And I think Michelle was actually had moved to the Boston area by that time. So she was able to record live in studio. So enjoy. She says 
So there we go. That was Level Cloud, one of my favorite songs I've ever written. The From now on, from then on, until I uh, finally moved, nothing too much happens in my life. Uh, with my, my shifted priorities to having a young family, I don't get as much time to do music and art like I used to. 2009, though, turns out I end up with like 12 weeks with no work to do. It, it's a little bit of a slow year, even though we have, I think, two, maybe two employees at that point. And so uh, 2008, 2009, if you remember, 2008 is when Ron Paul hit the scene big, and I got really excited about that. And more important than the election and his speeches, it was sort of like a gateway to having the internet really open up for libertarians. And instead of just reading Reason Magazine by myself, I discovered the the Mises Institute, discovered uh, Peter Schiff, discovered uh, Tom Woods, discovered eventually Stefan Molyneux and Murray Rothbard and all these, you know, Mises and all these other great, Lou Rockwell, you know, this whole huge libertarian community that I never knew existed. And of course, my viewpoint was very narrow when you're just sort of reading Cato and Reason because they're still very much status quo moderate libertarian, you know, they're sort of socially, what would you say, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, but all within a political framework. So learning about all these other things that, you know, Ron Paul is a gateway to these other things. Eventually, I became much more more radical over time. And as I was saying, in 2009, I had a lot of time off. So I released my last recorded work, which is The Brambles of Hell. And I was going to play this really kick-ass. The whole the whole record's pretty nasty. It's um, it's got a lot of uh, sort of hard rock, metal, punk. It's got some weird alternative type stuff. And it's me singing. I decided to take the singing uh, responsibilities myself. It's actually an adulty, a dipacy, and the brambles of hell were originally going to be one, you know, big seventeen song album. But because I was having trouble getting Chris to sing more than the six songs that he did, or not even that many, I think he's actually only sang on four, I decided to split up the sort of the pretty songs and then the really weird aggressive songs. And the really weird aggressive songs have really nasty lyrics, a lot of uh, cussing, and I'd say some awful things. And uh, But it turned out pretty well. I don't know if any, barely anyone except for my friend Dave, I think has listened to it besides a handful of other people. It only sold like a dozen copies, but it's still a neat piece. Also available from download at all those places uh, that I told you about. So I was going to play you this ass kicker called Let's Let's Go Fucking Crazy, which is sort of a takeoff on Prince's uh, RIP. Let's Go Crazy, but much more. It was actually about a gang of, of roving men that decide to rape and murder a young girl, uh, which I thought was more crazy than a dance party. Anyways, what I'm actually going to play for you is the last song, the last complete song that I've ever written. And it was the last song I also recorded, and it's called The Hot Beer Cotillion.
Us boys are beating here, we face eye to eye. Asses to elbows with you, my Finnish dogs. It's a dangerous fuse, a foolish roll, and you lose. As we bullshit through our first round of booze. Which of you assholes couldn't do what was right? Which of you cowards couldn't put up a fight? Which of you liars threw up big words this time? We'll never be Which of you pussies 
So there's my impassioned singing with a slight little political bent at a hot beer party. The hot beer cotillion. So moving forward, that was 2009. Business continues to grow up until we get to usually a resting place of close to about half a million dollars in revenue every year. Our client base grows to the point now where we just recorded, we have 25 active clients with things as diverse as large technology companies, uh, large accountancies. We have a drone company that we work for. We have a large, the largest social network. I can't reveal, of course, what client that is. Uh, and all sorts of other neat software companies. And we're now up to a serious six-sum in people. And we're looking to launch a new business coming up soon. And hopefully that'll make us lots of money. Nothing much happens uh, after, in this, this, this phase of life. We do, in 2011, we have our third baby, Vi. I'm a ripe 40 years old at this point and probably suddenly almost feeling too old to have a newborn. Most of this doesn't really sink in until I'm about 44 and she's four and I feel too old to have a four-year-old. Uh, I continue to move more thinking into more philosophy and ethics and politics and I have a very sudden shift in my worldview, especially after the 2012 Ron Paul campaign where I sort of give up politics forever. And as I've discussed in other podcasts, give up the, the persona of the angry libertarian who's mad at the Federal Federal Reserve and then focus more on that Harry Brown type stuff of personal liberty, trying to free myself and make my own life better. One of the and I think I've already sort of gone through this, so I'll I'll do this really quickly. In uh, about in 2012 we decide that we, we're gonna be free of the snow. And we're going to move to South Carolina. It takes us two years to sell the house. In 2013, my mother gets cancer. Uh, it's a really tough year, very stressful. Uh, so stressful that I even have like genetic diseases such as psoriasis and gout appear in my, my body. Uh, there's this dramatic break where I convince myself to homeschool the kids so that they can be free too. And in one very stressful month, uh, we go from grandma dying on one day to the next day getting an offer on the house to then having like five or six weeks to pack up everything and move to South Carolina and find a home and then to take the kids out of school, etc. And so the last two years I've been in South Carolina where I absolutely love it. It's beautiful. I've talked about that before. I've talked about meeting my friend Isaac and other people who are of very like-mindedness and right now, I've also managed to shift my work schedule, giving my number one employee, who I hired back in 2007, a lot more responsibility so that I could also have a lot more freedom with my time. So I think, let me check my list. I think that wraps it up. I probably didn't, um, this is a repeat of something I just said is, you know, again, the biggest lesson, the biggest learning that I learned is that if you want to do something different than average, you have to do something different. And being good at the same path that everyone else is taking is being average. So let that be your main takeaway for this podcast. I was going to talk about my goals for the future, but I don't have any goals. I really don't know. Besides, uh, I'd like to have my income rise a bit. I'd like to see it, you know, I have an arbitrary goal of a uh, million dollars per year. 
and I'm quite away, quite a bit away from that. So I'm going to keep on sort of t tweaking and doing different things with my business and see if I can get to that point. Uh, it would be nice to get there in the next five years. I, I don't know if it'll happen, but I think that'd be a good good target to be at a million dollars a year by the time I'm 50, and then I could probably save some of that and uh, maybe retire when I'm not too old. Or maybe not. Um, my, my work schedule is pretty manageable. It's, uh, if you know, as I said in an earlier podcast, if someone from the past saw me talking into my microphone in my air-conditioned office in my shorts, they would be feel bad for me that I didn't have a job. Uh, so that's my goals. Nothing big. I'm going to, as I talked about in the last episode, I think I've got about 30 or 40 podcasts in me, and then maybe I'll retire from that unless it's going, you know, it's cooking with gas and I've got a lot of other stuff to say, or maybe they'll just be less frequent. I don't know. That, I, that sort of sounds uninspired as I say it, but I think it might be true. So anyways, I uh, appreciate we're almost at two hours. If you've listened to all of this, the three-hour history of me, of my struggle, my comf, and how to be myself, I appreciate it very much. But if you didn't, and if no one found this useful, I still enjoyed this for just having this asset for myself. And then maybe if when my children get older and they're 25 or they're 35 and they want to reflect back on what I was doing and what their dad was doing or even play this for their children, then this little personal history will still be a valuable thing for me and still something that I was glad to do. So anyway, thank you very much. I was going to leave you with some nasty song off the last record. This final piece of music is off the my seventh album, not my eighth, an adulty adipacy. And it is called da, 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 da. It's called Bismuth Kisses. So Bismuth, if you don't know, is Pepto Bismol. That's what, technically that's the generic name of the anti-diarrheal. And so this is about giving little pink bismuth kisses. And the chorus says, I believe that wealth will save us. And it's something I really do believe. So enjoy. Thanks again for listening. Next podcast will be about something other than myself. Thanks. Some lovers.